Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. Welcome to Spy Talk. One of the people I've turned to for wisdom on intelligence issues over the years is Locke Johnson. He's not only written or contributed to over two dozen books on intelligence, his intimate knowledge of how the CIA and our other spy agencies work was grounded in having been a staff member of the so-called Church Committee, the monumental congressional investigation of CIA misdeeds in the 1970s, headed by Senator Frank Church of Idaho. His latest book couldn't be more timely. It's called The Third Option, Covert Action and American Foreign Policy. Locke Johnson, welcome to Spy Talk. Now, there's a lot going on in the intelligence world, and if there's anyone equipped to uh, address all facets of it, it's you having written over two dozen books on intelligence. You're a highly esteemed authority on intelligence operations, but I want to zero in right now on your latest book, The Third Option, Covert Action and American Foreign Policy. Now, when we speak about covert action, I think a lot of people think of, uh, you know, uh, gunplay and back alleys running across roofs and so on, um, car chases, motorcycle chases and so on. So but let's talk about what covert action really is. How do you define it? Well, Jeff, let me say, first of all, I consider it a, a huge honor to be on this program, and I thank you for the invitation. And you're also very kind for bringing up my latest book, The Third Option. Covert Action does have a bit of motorcycle chasing occasionally and other daring feats of, of uh, spidem, but most of the time it's fairly mundane. I like to think of covert action as the hidden side of American foreign policy, mm -hmm. and I tend to think of it in terms of four packages of activities. First of all, there's propaganda, or as the CIA likes to put it in a, in a gentler euphemism, perception enhancement of our friends and neighbors around the world. So we'd like them to think kindly of the United States and see us in a positive view. So what we do is, is uh, through a lot of different channels, attempt to get the American point of view across. Now, we do this in an honest way in 98% of the times, in times of war or in Ukraine right now, I'm sure we're, we're involved, we might use deception operations as one does in a battlefield situation, even the intelligence agencies. But most of what we do around the world is simply reiterating White House uh, speeches and press releases and State Department activities and so on. We try like the British uh, Broadcasting Company, BBC, to, to get the truth out there because there are a lot of people in the world who are behind what we used to call iron curtains who don't have access to honest information and we try to let them know what the united states is all about so but, uh, but if i may interrupt here yes please in general covert action refers to the clandestine or secret uh manipulation of of uh factors in a target nation, and that could be a friendly nation as well. We might want to influence events secretly in a target nation, right? Well, that's true. One, one of my friends had a wonderful way of putting it. He said it's a way of nudging history in a direction favorable to the United States. And one way we do that is by trying to, quote, educate, unquote, 
people around the world about why America stands for what it does. So that's why I brought up propaganda first. It's a rather harsh term, I suppose, but it's a way of getting information out. One of the ways we do that is secretly hiring media assets around the world. So let's say, just to pick out a name, I'll make up one, Hans Schnickelgruber in Munich, who's a well-known journalist there and very popular. If the CIA could recruit him secretly to write an op-ed every now and then in his um, German newspaper column, that would have a lot more validity and credibility than a White House press release. So we do that around the world. It does raise a moral issue. Certainly, from my point of view, I could see that doing again, doing that against the Russians and the Chinese because mm -hmm. they don't have a free press anyway. But when it comes to Germany and France and some other countries, one might have some moral reservations about uh, in, inserting our stories into their newspapers without the public knowing it. But we do it all the time. And of course, other nations who can afford to do, do the same mm -hmm. thing. So in other words, we, we plant stories or we yeah. we get uh, we recruit columnists, media types and officials to say nice things about us or to explain us better. And it's all secretly done. Yes, and sometimes we'll in, we'll buy secretly entire newspapers, as we've done in Latin America and different countries. They seem to be local, indigenous newspapers, but they're really run by the CIA with hiring a few local people. Can you give me an example of that? Yes, we'll take a, a, when we had a massive covert action operation against Allende of Chile. We we bought um, secretly the major newspaper in El Macorio. Yeah. And uh, we're running it for several months and putting a lot of anti-Allende um, columns within that newspaper. More common, though, is hiring the media assets secretly to, to write columns on our behalf. And, you know, if they're lazy, we'll even write it in perfect German back at CIA headquarters and ship it over to them. They don't have to mm -hmm. do anything. Then mm -hmm. they can collect their monthly stipend of X number of euros and go on a vacation on the Black Sea if they want. Mm-hmm. Now that's pretty easy, but but there's much more harsh versions of covert yes, action as well, well which are coups, for example. In nineteen, the most famous example, probably of all CIA covert actions, was the overthrow of the socialist Mossadegh government in Iran in nineteen fifty three. There was another coup in Guatemala. These are covert actions as well. Yes, yes. So I, I mentioned four different kinds. Let me get to the second one. This is what I call political covert action, and here we try to make sure that. Political parties and candidates around the world are elected who are favorable to the United States. And we do that by providing what MI6 in England refers to as King George's cavalry, cavalry to the rescue. Hmm. And that's just a term that means cold, hard cash. We provide a cash to candidates that are favorable to the United States so they can get elected and then go in and vote for programs that are helpful to us. The classic case of that is Europe right after World War II, where the communists were very active in trying to take over Italy and France and many other Western European countries, Germany. And we countered that by supporting secretly candidates uh, who were pro-Western. So it was a battle between the, the Soviet Union pumping in rubles for their candidates secretly and us pumping in dollars for our, our own candidates. Now, one could ask, why didn't we just do it openly? Why didn't we stand up and say, look, the, the Soviets are trying to buy your elections, and here's some evidence for that. We're not going to do that. We're providing some money to pro-Western candidates, but we're doing it openly, and they can accept it or not. The reason we didn't do that is because the Italian voter, the French voter, and so on, would not have liked the idea of 
of some local politician being a puppet dancing to the tune of the United States or the Soviet Union. So both we and the Soviets kept that underground so that we wouldn't have that effect. And then the third category, and here we're going up a ladder of escalation and becoming harsher and harsher as we go, is economic covert action. And here is uh, sabotage, really. Everything from blowing up bridges to mining harbors to counterfeiting currency and flooding an enemy nation to try and disrupt their economy. So this can get pretty mean. And then uh, uh, harshest of all, this is the fourth category, which is known as paramilitary operations or PM. And here you get into coups d'etat, even assassination plots. So the gloves are really off when you reach the paramilitary area uh, uh, level. And it means supporting local groups that in revolutions that might overthrow a regime that's hostile to the United States. Take, for example, the Hmong tribesmen in Laos during the 60s. We supported them in hopes of uh, driving out the communists in, in, in Laos, but even more importantly, to distract communist fighters in Laos from going into Vietnam and killing American soldiers. So the CIA and the Hmong tribesmen in Laos kept those communist soldiers busy right there in Laos, and that prevented them from probably killing, you know, another 10,000 American troops. More recently, we have a phenomenon we might call overt covert operations, in which yeah. a covert operation, in other words, an operation that is not admitted to, fessed up by the CIA, uh, everybody knows what's going on. I'm thinking of Afghanistan in the 1980s when the CIA was supplying the uh, Mujahideen against the Soviet Red Army in Afghanistan. And it became widely known that this was a CIA operation in concert with Pakistan's intelligence agency. Um, everybody knew what was going on, but we never admitted it. So we called it until it was over, until we won. Yeah. We called it overt covert operation. Yes. Well, you make a good point, and, and the reason we have such phenomenon is you can't keep paramilitary operations secret very long, because after all, we're talking about wars here. We're talking about bang-bang, shooting in the field, and soldiers out there, and helicopters flying around, and maybe even bombers dropping bombs. But, but both sides, let's say the Soviet Union or today Russia and the United States, still want to keep it officially a covert action, even though it may be discussed in the newspapers. Because once you solidify it and turn it into an overt declared war, then you're talking about possible escalation, even up to the nuclear level. So it's far better to keep the mythology of, of fighting these wars secretly and underground, even though they're quite noisy and often well-known. But I would point out that the vast majority of our covert actions do remain covert particularly the ones I mentioned earlier, propaganda and political and economic. Can you think of any that are ongoing now or you suspect that are ongoing now? Well, I can only speculate about that. This is very highly classified. In fact, as a researcher, it's rather frustrating to study the subject because it's very difficult to find out information. I rely mainly on um, interviews with people in the know who are on the inside, also reading all the archives that I can get my hands on. And there have been a lot of government investigations like the Church Committee and others that have produced a lot of information about this subject. But you speculating, one can imagine that we're going um, full bore when it comes to helping the Ukrainian troops fight the Russians in, 
in the war that's going on there right now. And one of the forms of covert action, just one of the prongs of covert action, would be uh, helping get a message out or plant articles about uh, Russian cruelties in uh, Ukraine or Ukrainian victories. I think the Ukrainians seem to be very good at this, and I have no doubt that we're helping them get their their message out. And that's a form of covert action. You're right. And I have no doubt, too. And that's another example of what I mentioned earlier. This is honest stuff. This is what the Russians are really doing. And we're telling the world about their brutality. Mm, the best kind of propaganda is stuff that's actually true. Yes, right. And I'm kind of proud of our propaganda in a way. It may sound like an oxymoron to be proud of propaganda because it's got a negative connotation. But I'm proud in the sense that even though we're using these hidden channels, we do it in an honest manner. This is this is truthful information. Mm-hmm. And so going back to where you started with this explanation, uh, it would be uh, nudging uh, columnists, media assets, and so on, secret media assets of the CIA in France or Argentina or wherever in the world to write uh, positive articles about the Ukrainian struggle against the Russians. Indeed, indeed. And but maybe me- add a little spin maybe to it. Well, uh, maybe spinning it to talk about the importance of democracy, and if you want to call out a spin, but if you want to call spin lying about this and making up things, I don't think that's going on. We don't need to do that. The mm-hmm. truth is brutal enough. We just make have to make the truth known. Now, of course, not all these covert actions end well. <laughs> I'm no. thinking, of course, again, going back to Iran in 1953, and uh, down the road, we end up with uh, the mullahs and, uh, you know, an Islamic state taking over. Although I must say, I had a lunchtime conversation with a quite droll ex-CIA official uh, back in the 1980s in which I was complaining about, look what we accomplished in Iran. You know, we got we we propped up and put into power the Shah of Iran was uh, notoriously corrupt and so on and agitated the uh, religious elements in the country. And we ended up with a radical Islamic regime. And he, uh, you know, he dabbed a napkin on his lips and he said, well, we got 25 years out of the Shah. That wasn't too bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember remember talking to Bill Colby about that, a, a friend of mine who was director of the CIA and a very good one, I think. And he said, look, we got 25 years of fairly cheap gasoline coming our way from Iran. So it was worth it. And I can see that point. And, you know, it, Jeff, it raised the question of, of predicting what the repercussions are going to be of any covert action. And that's a very difficult art form. We need to spend more time trying to fathom what might happen if things go wrong. We don't give that enough attention. But, you know, it's a little unreasonable to have a covert action in 1953, which seems to be fairly successful until 1970s. And then suddenly it falls apart. And to say that that was a whole failure. Who could have predicted in 1953 that the Shah would go on to be quite unpopular? And shame on the Shah for not spreading a lot of the oil wealth of his country around to to help the people of his own country. So he he developed his own animosity, I think, among his own people because of mistakes that he made. And shame on us for not leaning on him more to be more humanitarian. Now, he did do some things. He had a more enlightened view on the role of women in society than many people do in that country. And he did reform the education system to some degree. But he he aggrandized a lot of wealth and lived in palaces of sort of isolated from the people and really invited his own downfall. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, another arm of covert action, of course, like you talked about, is paramilitary operations. And we we were very unsuccessful in paramilitary operations against the Soviet Union in the years following World War II. 
uh, our agent nets were rolled up. We used a lot of Eastern Europeans for this uh, duty, slipping them into the Soviet Union for sabotage and spying and so on. Can you imagine us carrying out covert action of that sort against Russia today? I think it'd be very hard. You know, the Russians are quite expert at counterintelligence. We're pretty good, too. Both sides have mistakes. Both sides suffer having moles from one another's services within their own government. But generally, we're both very sophisticated at finding out whether or not someone's trying to infiltrate uh, the country. So it'd be very hard, I think, although you can be sure that we're doing our best to recruit people in, in uh, Ukraine who are pro-Russian to actually come our side and work for us. And so that will continue to go on. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are always going to be people who are willing to commit treason. And the goal of counterintelligence from the American point of view is to find those people who are willing because we want information about Russia and what they're up to. And if we can find someone willing to give us that information, then fine. It's going to cost us some money, but it might be money well spent. And of course, the Russians view it in the same way. They're trying to find weaknesses in our society. And the German intelligence service had a long and sordid history of being penetrated by the Soviets and now the Russians. And, and most recently, actually, a, a, a Russian mole was discovered at the, that's right. in the senior yeah. ranks of German intelligence. Yes. It's not a new phenomenon over there. We've, they've had a sordid history. And as you know, we helped them set up the BND, their intelligence service. But And the reason we did is because that the Germans knew so much about the Soviets, having fought them in World War II. So we recruited a lot of those Nazi um, soldiers who had been intelligence officers to work with the CIA and this new BND organization that we helped create in Germany. But unfortunately, their loyalties sometimes were with the, with the Russians and not so much with us. But generally, you know, I don't want to denigrate the German intelligence service. They've been done some very good things, too. And they've been a good partner of ours. But like any intelligence service, they're vulnerable to being uh, infiltrated. Sure. Do you have a sense, of course, in your portfolio is uh, extensive experience on the oversight end of intelligence on Capitol Hill, you were uh, present at the creation, you might say, of the o intelligence oversight on the Hill uh, with, the intel with the House Intelligence Committee as it was formed. And you worked uh, with uh, Senator uh, Frank Church in the, uh, you know, uh, extraordinary hearings and the CIA misdeeds in the 1970s. You get a sense now that uh, Congress is... Uh, conducting good oversight of intelligence activities and, and, and to what should they be meddling in every uh, covert action or, uh, you know, getting brief on everything. Uh, there's a lot of downside to oversight when it's not complete and when it's too complete. Well, I think you make a lot of good points there, Jeff. I would point out that before 1975, there was virtually no oversight to speak of. It was a kind of darkness. And the notion was there'd be intelligence exceptionalism in the United States. They wouldn't be part of the regular Madisonian system of checks and balances. It was too sensitive a topic. They would serve the president and that would be it. But given the Operation Chaos, spying on American citizens involved in anti-war protests uh, by the CIA, led to a realization, you know, a lesson we learned from the founders, that power can be corrupting. And the CIA misused its power when it was spying on American citizens. So that led to the church committee, and I was church's top assistant. And we did our best to make sure that we preserved 
the important functions of the CIA and all the other intelligence agencies and tried to strengthen what they do. But we wanted to make sure that they weren't spying on American citizens. And we also wanted to make sure that they weren't involved in assassination plots anymore. So uh, we moved forward on that front. But but your point is well taken. I, I can remember one senator on the Senate Intelligence Committee who tried to tell the uh, director of the CIA how many uh, intelligence officers he should have in every country overseas and how they should recruit assets and so on. It was absurd mm-hmm. because he didn't know anything about it, really. He had no depth there. So a lot of these things you have to not micromanagement. You have to let these agencies go forward. These are honorable men and women. And we, 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 we don't know yet how things are going to turn out with extremists uh, uh, and the Republican Party uh, polarizing politics across the board. I have to interrupt here for just a second and say we have to pay the bills with a short okay. commercial break. Everybody sit tight. We'll be back in a minute. Okay, we're back with Locke Johnson, uh, professor emeritus at the University of Georgia and one of the most preeminent intelligence historians we have. We're talking about oversight now. There was a hiccup, you might say, and I'm probably putting it too lightly in terms of the CIA's torture program and the black sites and so on. They weren't entirely forthcoming uh, to the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee. How do you, how do you judge that a sad chapter? Well, it was really unfortunate. Uh, of course, you have to put it in context. Imagine if you and I were in the White House or out at the CIA and right after 9-11, we were worried about another event that could have happened like that, maybe even worse, using a nuclear weapon. So you can see why the CIA and the Bush administration wanted to really find out as much as we could about what these terrorists were up to. But unfortunately, they lost sight of the fact that we're not the Soviet Union. We have higher moral standards than these totalitarian regimes have. Now, the FBI, I must say, did understand that, and they uh, interrogated terrorists by being kind to them and uh, friendly and thoughtful and offering tea and crumpets and whatever, and it worked pretty well. The CIA, unfortunately, went down a different pathway, and they began to torture these people. Uh, and, you know, some of the lawyers out there have actually said to me, well, it really wasn't torture. Waterboarding is not torture if you do it carefully. How do you do waterboarding carefully, right? Well, also, we prosecuted the Japanese for waterboarding. As yeah, exactly. Crimes. Yeah, Believe it or not, one guy said to me, you know, there's a lot of talk about this one terrorist who we waterboarded 383 times. It wasn't 383 times of waterboarding. It was 383 drops of water that we dropped on him. I mean, are you kidding? But that's what mm-hmm. this guy claimed to me. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of mythology about that. And, you know, evidence was destroyed. The director of operations out there destroyed the videotapes of some of the torture activities, which is against the law. You're supposed to preserve these uh, government documents. So a lot of things went on that were unfortunate. And as you know, uh, the Diane Feinstein, senator from California, conducted an inquiry into this, a very fine inquiry, and sort of mapped out what the torture boundaries had been. And, and we went farther than one could really imagine. But uh, President Obama never let that report be declassified. He finally allowed an executive summary to be declassified. It was quite revealing and horrifying. And that led to passage on the Hill of the McCain bill, which prohibited torture by the United States in the future, which is what is the right position. Hmm. Do you think that um, 
this polarization of American politics is going to affect uh, intelligence oversight? Well, I'm afraid so. You know, polarization of politics is poisoning our entire system and it affects everything. I can remember back before 1995, and I was actually working on the Hill at the time, and also in the White House. I was on the Aspen Brown Intelligence Commission. And intelligence was considered above politics. And you'd find Republicans and Democrats uniformly voting together on intelligence topics on the Senate and House Intelligence Committees. But I blame Newt Gingrich of Georgia for polarizing this country. He, he took a take no hostages approach to American politics, and it became very shrill and harsh and rhetorical. And we're still living in that phase. I've written uh, various op-eds recently in the New York Times, covered a letter that I and a few others uh, sent to Jim Jordan, the new chair of the subcommittee in the House of Representatives, looking into various um, topics, one of them being whether or not the FBI is misusing its power against Republicans. And uh, our letter basically said, look, church committee-like or investigations are very valuable. Accountabilities are valuable. As Harry Truman once put it, you need to clean house every now and then, go in there with a broom and sweep things out and see what's going mm -hmm. on. But I was afraid that Jim Jordan, and this is the essence of what we said in our letter to the New York Times, published of few days ago, Jim Jordan seems to be more interested in politics and trying to score points against the Biden administration than he does in a, an objective fact-finding inquiry. So I, yes, I'm very troubled by polarization. There's so many problems, Jeff, that we have in this country that we have to overcome, or we're going to lose our democracy. Gerrymandering, corporate spending in politics, um, voting prohibitions, voting intimidation, there's a whole list of things that are yeah. threatening our democracy, and polarization is among them. What do you think about this deep state idea? This is a, something, this is a concept that Jim Jordan and company are pursuing, that they have not dropped, just like they think the elections were stolen in 2020. They're convinced that there's a deep state that they're secret, secretly controlling activities in the United States. Now, I have to say, I'm going to volunteer here, maybe go out on a limb. There is a deep state of a sort. And we also call it the establishment. We call it it's kind of the permanent government. The people who, you know, just like people work for the Commerce Department uh, for 25 years, people work for the CIA for 25 years, and they're in, they're there. Or as uh, General Hayden, the former CIA director, said to me, administrations come and go, you know, and we're there. Yes. So right. what do you think of this whole deep state idea? Well, Jeff, I think you nailed it. You expressed it very well. Uh, there is, um, as Eisenhower reminded us, a military-industrial complex. There are uh, there is a relationship between the Pentagon and uh, armed services committees on Capitol Hill and corporations that manufacture weapons, and that has been a problem. And our military budget right now is about $816 billion per year, which is more than the next 25 countries in the world. So we, we do have this kind of bureaucratic apparatus. But by and large, the CIA and the other intelligence agencies, and most, and, and, and as far as that goes, our other bureaucracies, really serve the president and the Congress, and they're held generally pretty accountable. But you're right, administrations come and go, but you have the bureaucrats there all the time. But, but they're not there in a self-serving way. They're there to serve the American people and and most of them do a good job. You know, when I was in, in the government on Capitol Hill involved in oversight, I was so deeply impressed by the uh, skill and dedication and long hours that 
intelligence officers put in. And not only them, but State Department people and, you know, throughout the government. So I think the notion of a pernicious deep state working for only its own agenda and, and harming the rest of us is false. And yet, and yet we go back to the, oh, the disaster of saying Iraq had WMD, that Saddam Hussein had nuclear weapons and so on. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the CIA director at the time uh, famously said it was a slam dunk the intelligence. I've examined that intelligence and that whole process of coming to the conclusion there was WMD. It was, let's say, flawed at the very best. And that's being kind. How do right. things like that happen? I mean, that's not just serving the public interest and, you know, uh, selfless uh, bureaucrats. Those are people who are who cave to the political ambitions and and uh, objectives of the Bush administration to invade Iraq. They were going to do it and they wanted the intelligence to fit. Well, I think there's a lot of that, Jeff, but let's also be fair and think about the environment at the time. And you had um, experts about Iraq at the various universities, the top universities in the country, who were also worried that there might be WMDs there. And uh, where we failed is not by is by by not sending in more groups to investigate what was going on. Remember the Germans and the French said, we're not going to help you invade Iraq because we want more UN inspections and we want to go in there again and, and take a close look. And instead, we rushed to judgment and the Bush people wanted to go in. And I think in part because the neoconservatives wanted to make sure that Iraq was brought to its knees so it wouldn't send missiles flying toward Israel. And I think Bush too, felt a bit of revenge against uh, Saddam because Saddam had planned to assassinate his father and his mother when they visited Kuwait. So there are a lot of complex things going on. But, you know, the, one of the big culprits here, and I'll be brief about this, I think is CIA Director George Tenet. He should have absolutely insisted that the President of the United States and his other top advisors listen to the Energy Intelligence Unit, to the Air Force Intelligence Unit, and to a couple of others that were dissenters about this notion of double WMDs in Iraq. And, you know, one of our major sources of information was a German ascent who turned out to be a liar. You, fact, you know, uh, I, I wanted to bring up, and not to, to belabor the point, uh, this curveball, he was codenamed Curveball. curveball yeah, exactly. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, what struck me in my own investigation of how that intelligence was handled is they didn't, they, you know, the CIA didn't take uh, steps to verify that information or corroborate the information that a, that a news organization would take. We say we got to have two sources. <laughs> At least we used to say that, uh, and it's, I think that that's still true in the major media print organizations. Uh, you got to have somebody else to confirm that or corroborate that information. They didn't even take basic steps to corroborate. They never interviewed this guy. No, you're Absolutely. absolutely right. It was a debacle, which yeah. is going to haunt U.S. foreign policy forever. I think so, although let's hope we've learned a lesson from that. I don't think we're going to take any foreign intelligence liaison at their word anymore. We're going to want to interrogate these people ourselves. You think so? Are you confident about I think about so, that? yeah. I think we've learned about Curveball. We're not going to fall for that again. What at makes least... you say, I have to ask you. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's a, it's a question that reporters ask. How do you know that? <laughs> well, imagine if you're burned. You really want to be burned again? I, I think this is a lesson that was embedded in that whole case. 
But there were other things that went wrong, too. I mean, the Bush administration put in the State of the Union address that Saddam had yellow cake uranium that he was using to build atomic bombs. And George Tenet and the CIA had told him, that is flat wrong. It's not true. And the Bush administration knew that, but they put it in the State of the Union address anyway. So your earlier statement that the Bush administration was so intent on invasion that they were willing to twist the intelligence any way they wanted. But here's what Tenet should have done. He should have stood up and said, you're going to listen to these dissenting points of view in the intelligence community before you make that decision. And furthermore, we're going to have a national intelligence estimate on Iraq. You haven't ordered one. You should have before you launched an invasion there. But since you haven't ordered one, we're going to have one ourselves and show you what the truth is about that case. Mm -hmm. but, but the CIA never did that. Yeah, it makes it's worrisome because now we're facing, you know, uh, we're we're hearing pretty strident voices pushing us toward a conflict with China. Uh, and and in China, there are strident voices, nationalist voices pushing China toward a conflict with the United States. And this is where the role of intelligence becomes critically important. Yes. In keeping everybody calm and yes. wedded to the facts. Well, you're right, because, you know, we've had a tendency over the years, going back to the 50s, to be like an elephant scared by every mouse that might wander by. And it's been good politics to engage in these scare tactics. Look what it did for Joe McCarthy. It made him a national celebrity, at least for a while. So we have to be cautious and guarded against these people who are trying to scare us into military operations, as the second Bush administration did against Saddam Hussein. We should have asked for greater evidence, as the Germans and the French did. That's why yeah. they refused to go in. Well, we're going to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And yes. we are we are now in a titanic struggle with Russia. Um, whether people see it that way or not, I think it's an absolute fact that this war has become a struggle, an existential uh, struggle for Vladimir Putin. At least he sees it that way. And uh, we don't know how this is going to turn out. And now we have these, you know, new conflicts with China or increasing conflicts with China. And there's no resolution of that in sight. So uh, we, we, we live in fraught times. Uh, the most dangerous times I can remember since uh, the 1950s uh, when the U.S. And, and the Soviet Union were waving missiles at each other. Um, there was the Berlin uh, conflict and so on. So uh, it's a very dangerous time. So we can only, uh, we, I hope that your optimism about intelligence reforms is true. Uh, well, Jeff, you know, we had talked a little bit about Ukraine and it's such an important issue right now. And I think we would be negligent if we ended this conversation without discussing how at least one imagines U.S. intelligence has helped that war a great deal. Mm -hmm. Imagine the print, the pinpoint um, precision bombing that's been going on the Ukraine side against the Russians. That doesn't happen by magic. That happens by providing U.S. Um, satellite and airplane reconnaissance of where mm -hmm. the Russians are. So American intelligence, I would imagine, I don't have any inside information about this, but it's just logical, is playing an important role behind the scenes in making the battlefield much more transparent for the Ukrainians and therefore adding to their successes. I think you're absolutely right. I don't think there's any doubt about that. This is what is the most valuable thing we're supplying besides uh, weapons is the intelligence and communication ability, allowing these units to uh, to communicate with each other and so on. Um, 
If you go back to the wars we've had against Iraq, one of the reasons we demolished them in two wars is because we had almost perfect battlefield transparency, and they were clueless as to what was going on. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not the kind of war you want to get involved in, where you don't know what the enemy's doing, and they know completely what you're doing. What also strikes me is how we've used intelligence publicly, and I think this is, uh, this is, uh, is never, we've never seen this before. Uh, that I can that I can remember offhand, where we went public with our intelligence on Russian intentions last February a year ago. We right. said they're going to invade and and they're going to do these false flag incidents right. yeah. uh, and so on. I I I don't remember us using intelligence in in that public way, and uh, uh, and now we're we're doing it in regard to uh, China. I, I was struck the other day that. Uh, that the Secretary of State Blinken uh, said, uh, we think the Chinese are on the verge of supplying weapons uh, to uh, Russia, and and, and we're warning them not to do it. How do we learn that they're about to supply weapons? Because we have spies and we have intercepts. And by the way, uh, Jeff, along those lines, in terms of using intelligence for good public purposes, there's a program called Medea, in which CIA scientists, and there are many good scientists out at the CIA and other intelligence agencies, are working with uh, university scientists and and um, private sector scientists to uh, do studies of the environment. And, you know, ironically, the greatest national security threat facing the United States could well be the environment and how it's, it's going to ruination right before our eyes. So it's heartening to me to see the intelligence agencies who have all these satellites and other forms of reconnaissance to look at enemy missile silos and enemy tanks and so on can also pick up a lot of information about coral reefs and and uh, forest depletion and so on. And they're sharing that information with scientists. And it's a, mm-hmm. a wonderful symbiotic relationship. Well, on the environmental plan, I think we have the information <laughs> <laughs> getting people to act on it is another thing altogether. Well, that's okay. true, but, but you know, the nothing like the CIA satellites for the past 50 years who have a beautiful daily photographs of, of Mother Earth who can really give you a good idea of what's happening to the environment. Locke Johnson, I always learn something when I'm talking to you or <laughs> I'm reading you. Um, it's just been a thrill for me to actually do this face-to-face interview with you. And and thank you for coming on the Spy Talk podcast. And I have a feeling we're going to do this again. And until then, let's just hope for the best. Well, it's been a thrill for me as well. And I thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our entire podcast archive available at our home at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please also check out the Spy Talk column on Substack, where my colleagues and I offer fresh reporting and analysis from the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Until then, I'm Jeff Stein. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.